0: This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Lagrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at Rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast and God bless. Well, I want you to look around. We're quickly running out of room out of here. Y'all going to, to start scooching in a little bit more. That's, that's exciting. A couple of quick announcements before we move on. A uh, financial piece. If you guys are, some of you guys are taking that. It's moving tonight to Randy Presley's house, from here to his house. So if you have questions about that, come see me or see Randy after the service. We're going to begin. Uh, I think next Sunday, the, the the weekend we did the art of marriage, that was such a huge hit, and we had so many couples enjoy. We're going to teach that as a class. We had a lot of people that couldn't make it to that weekend, so we're going to teach that as a class. Uh, so we're going to spread that out over several weeks. Tim Woody. He's going to do that. I think Tim knows. He's, there you go. I think he knows he's going to do that. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Tim's going to be very good at that. You'll like to hear him teach. A great teacher. Has some real training and 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 working with marriages. Um, so anyway, that's going to start in a couple of weeks. You can see Tim about that if you have any questions, okay? And then you you may have gotten one of these, the deacon sample ballot. Just take a look at that. You'll be doing that next week. You don't have to fill it out this week. That's for next week. You can take a look at it. Be ready to do that next week. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this morning for all you've already done and for all you're going to continue to do, Lord. I thank you for an incredible time of worship as we just focus our hearts and our minds on you, Lord, and all you've done for us and all you've given us in your hope and your mercy and your grace, Father. I pray for this time of study that you would open up the word of God so that our minds can understand it. You would give us clarity, Father. Help me to rightly divide the word of truth. And then I pray we'd leave here changed, more transformed in the image of Jesus Christ, your son. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. You may have had the opportunity this week with with it being the anniversary of the September 11th attacks to see and remember 11 years ago that tragic event, September the 11th, 2001. I had the opportunity this week as I was doing some of my research to do a little study and and, and I was just kind of drawn again to that day. And most of us will never forget where we were and what that experience was like. But I was doing some research and I, I found an article... Then I want to read you just a little excerpt from, because it's such an interesting article, because even in the midst of that tragedy, this woman that wrote this article found hope. And so this article is about a lady that lives in New York City, and, and she'd actually gone to work the mornings of the attack, and she explains just the, 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 the chaos and the turmoil, and how she had to get outside the city, and we pick up the article when she finally arrived home, back with her husband, Tom. I want to read just a portion of this article to you on September the 11th from 2001. She said, when we finally made it home, Tom and I pulled my father's flag, the flag that had covered dad's casket when he died, out from the darkness of the closet and we hung it over our front door. Across the street and next door, our neighbors had put out their flags too. As I stood looking at that flag, I remembered how as a teenager, my father's patriotism had embarrassed me. At the high school football games, I wanted to hide when he placed his right hand over his heart and lustily bellowed out every word of the Star-Spangled Banner. Back then, my father's old-fashioned, unapologetic patriotism seemed not only corny but irrelevant. Forged by the fires of adversity and sacrifice, his patriotism was the birthright of a different generation, the greatest generation. Surely something that could never burn in my privileged baby boomer's heart until now. The two towers were not all that fell on that awful day. If only for a moment, all that was trivial about everyday American life fell away too. The culture of celebrity, partisan politics, irony, all were unmasked as the cheap, shallow, frivolous impostures that they are. Rising out of the ruins, all that remained standing were the important things. Freedom, friends, family, and faith. Essential and enduring, they offered meaning and hope to a nation and people suffering incalculable heartache and loss. Now, I thought, is the time to say, I love you. Now is the time to say, I'm sorry. Now is the time to say, thank you. Now is the time to make peace with God. Now is the time, tomorrow may be too late. On September the 11th, 2001, it was all so clear. You know, I don't think any of us will ever forget that day in that moment. And I'll never forget coming to church that night. Many of you will remember we did a prayer service the night of September the 11th, 2001. And this place was just packed with people. And I'll never forget, I knelt right over here, right at this altar. And I just laid myself upon the altar, as so many other people did, and I just wept. And I prayed for God's mercy, and I prayed for God's love, and I prayed for God's grace. But above all things, I prayed for God's hope. You see, sometimes we don't understand that without the dark backdrop of the night sky, we don't see the stars quite so brilliantly. And sometimes it's against a a canvas of despair that hope shines brightest. And I love this article because this woman understood the essence of everything they had experienced. And even in the midst of that turmoil and that tragedy, she saw hope. And I thought it was so interesting because this morning as we continue our study of the great story in our passage of Scripture this morning. We're going to see for the first time in history, in Genesis chapter 3, in the midst of terrible tragedy, in the midst of terrible sin, in the midst of terrible evil, we're going to see for the first time the dawning of hope in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open there. Genesis chapter 3. Now I began a sermon series last week entitled, you can put that title screen back up for a second. I started a sermon series last week entitled The Great Story, and I made the argument last week, and I'm going to continue to make the argument throughout the pages of Scripture, even though there are a lot of individual stories that we can learn a lot from, if we back up from the picture of Scripture, there's one great story. And there's a thread that runs from the beginning of the Old Testament, all the way through the pages of Scripture to the end of the New Testament. And it's a thread of God's plan for redemption. It's a a story of God's plan to right the wrong. It's a story of God's plan to buy back a lost and dying world. But ultimately, the great story is God's plan to save His people through Jesus Christ. That is the great story of the Bible. And so last week we took a look at Genesis 1 and we saw the creation of everything, the heavens and the earth, and how it was good and how it was perfect. And now we're going to move this morning into Genesis chapter 3. And I want to go ahead and give you a heads up. In Genesis chapter 3, everything is going to change. John MacArthur said this about Genesis chapter 3. He said it may be the most important chapter in the Bible. He said it's the third chapter of Genesis which defines for us why the world is the way it is. It defines for us the problem of a fallen civilization, of a fallen society, of fallen humanity, and a fallen universe. Not to understand... The third chapter of Genesis is not to understand anything about the reality of the world in which we live and the people who are a part of it. See, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see this incredible story of sinfulness and despair and the fall of man. But in the midst of this tragedy, we're going to see for the very first time the dawning of hope. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he, this is the serpent, said to the woman. We studied the woman last week, right? Genesis 1 and 2. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will surely die. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we're going to stop there for a few minutes, and I want to draw your attention to something that I think is very interesting in Genesis chapter 3. We start in Genesis chapter 1, the creation, everything was good, everything was perfect. Now we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3 that three things are going to enter the picture. Now, remember, we understand Scripture from the big picture because we have the whole Bible. But as we're studying through Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and now Genesis chapter 3, three things are going to enter the picture that's going to change the course of human history. And we're going to focus and understand those three things this morning. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. The first thing that enters the picture that we have not yet seen in the book of Genesis is, number one, the serpent. The serpent enters the picture, Genesis 1 Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now if we only had Genesis to understand the serpent, we'd be in a little bit of trouble. If we started reading in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, through Genesis chapter 2, through Genesis chapter 3, and we read of the serpent, we don't really understand exactly who he is. I mean, God has created the earth He's created it good, he's created it perfect, and all of a sudden enter this talking snake. (laughs) Now it's kind of difficult for us to understand exactly what this talking snake is. And if we only had Genesis to understand it, we'd be a little confused. But what we understand is as we begin to back out of Scripture a little bit. And we begin to understand the big picture. We begin to have a better understanding in other parts of Scripture of exactly who this serpent is. So, if you want to write down in your notes Revelation chapter 12, 9, I want to read a couple of verses out of Revelation that's going to clue us in on exactly who this serpent is. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says this. I want you to listen. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, we don't understand in Genesis chapter 3 exactly who the serpent is. But as we begin to look at other parts of Scripture, and especially the end times in the book of Revelation, we begin to see this picture that the devil is referred to as the ancient serpent. And so we begin to understand as we piece this together, that in Genesis chapter 3, it wasn't just a talking snake. It was the devil himself. That's important for us to understand. Now, scholars have debated exactly how this looked, what the serpent looked like, exactly how the serpent worked, and how Satan infiltrated. We we don't know how all that works. But we know very clearly in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent, which is Satan, for the very first time enters the picture. Now, he has this very interesting conversation with Eve. He slithers up to Eve, or maybe he walks up to Eve. The Bible doesn't say because after he's cursed, then he has to slither on the ground. Some scholars believe maybe he walked before this. We don't know. But he comes up to Eve and he begins to have this conversation with Eve. Now here's the interesting thing about this conversation he has with Eve. He doesn't walk up to Eve and say, God is a liar, you don't need to listen to him. He doesn't say that. Instead he uses deception and he uses trickery and he's very subtle in the things that he says so he's not forthright in telling her that he doesn't believe in God or he's not forthright in telling her that she should disobey God but he, he begins to trick her. And deceive her and move her in this direction to do the things that God called her not to do. Now, now we look at Eve and we think, how in the world? <laughs> how could Eve allow the devil to come into her life and have this conversation with her and begin to trick her and deceive her? And we, we, we cast judgment upon Eve. How could she be so naive? How could she be so dumb? And then we look at ourselves. And we see the same thing. We see the devil work his way into our lives very subtly. He never makes sin look terrible and evil, does he? He makes it look beautiful. He makes it look as if something we want to partake in. And as we begin to have this conversation with the devil, right, we begin to think, well, maybe there are things in my life I could be doing differently. Maybe there's some things I'd like to partake in that I'm not partaking in now. And there are some things that would bring me pleasure and would make me happy. And the devil leads us very clearly into this idea of temptation and eventually into sin. Now I want you to look at Genesis Chapter 3, verse 6. It's interesting here. They have this conversation, this back and forth. What can you eat? Can't eat of the tree. You will not surely die. Now look at verse 6. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree... By the way, the Bible doesn't say it's an apple. We think it's an apple. We say apple oftentimes. Our, pictures draw, our kids draw pictures of apples. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But the Bible just says a fruit. We don't know. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. Now there are three things I want you to notice in this sinful act of Eve. Now you need to understand when this takes place, everything's going to change. I'm going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. But the serpent enters the picture. He has this conversation with Eve. He leads her into this point of temptation and she notices three things about this fruit. I want you to notice them very quickly. Number one, it's good for food. Number two, it's pleasing to the eye. And number three, it's desirable for gaining wisdom. Here's what Eve says. It's good for food. It's kind of the idea of the lust of the flesh. Man, if I ate that, I sure would enjoy it. Man, if I could just taste that, I bet it'd taste sweet to me. And it'd be good for me and it would help my body gain strength. And it's something that seems pleasing to me. I want to do it. Here's what one scholar says about the lust of the flesh. He says the desire for food was a part of what drew Eve into sin. Now watch this. He says the body exercises a pull on us, and sin can use various physical appetites. There are various desires of the body: the desire for ease, the desire for laziness, the desire for appetite, for greed, for physical pleasure, for sexuality. All of these are channels down which we may be drawn into sin. So Eve says it's it's pleasing to me. It's kind of the lust of the flesh. And then she says it's pleasing to the eye, it's the lust of the eyes, right? Now I just started thinking this week as I was reading through this and as I was reminded of this idea of the lust for the eye. How many sin has started through the lust of the eyes? How many families have been ruined because of the lust of the eyes, man? We see something and we're creatures of sight and we lust after it. And it leads to sin. I mean, David and Bathsheba, that's a great story. That's a great example for us. The lust of the eyes leads to all the sin that David went through in his life. See, Eve saw this fruit and it looked good to her. It looked pleasing to her eyes. So she partook in it. You see how the devil does that? He doesn't present you with the ugliness of sin. He presents you with the beauty of sin. Ah, it's pleasing to you. Looks good. It's good for you. You should partake in it. So not only does she see it's good for food and pleasing to thou, but she says it's desirable for gaining wisdom. She's got this desire to want to know as much as God, right? God said, here are your limitations. Here's the order. I mean, we talked about that last week. Here's the way I'm creating the world. And Eve and Adam, you've got a certain place in this created order. You've got certain limitations. But Eve says, you know what? If I take of this, I can gain wisdom. God hasn't given me enough wisdom. I need more So God, I'm going to step outside of the created order. I'm going to step outside of your will for my life. And instead, this seems desirable for gaining wisdom. I'm going to partake in it. As I was reading through Genesis and studying through some commentaries, I came across 1 John 2, verse 15, 16, and 17. I want you to listen to it. I think it's very interesting. 1 John 2, 15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... Now listen, listen to the correspondence between 1 John... In Genesis 3. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, there it is, the desires of the eye, number two, and the pride of life, the idea of wanting to gain more wisdom, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides with God. Forever. You see this idea of the temptation of sin, the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the desire to know more and to know more than God and gain wisdom. It's a lie the devil taught in Genesis chapter 3. You need to understand this. It's still the lie he's teaching today. And it's very subtle and he's very sneaky. And so we see the serpent enter this picture. And we see him to begin to tempt Eve and begin to lead her astray. And now look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. So she's taken of the fruit. She's eaten of the fruit. She's given some to her husband who was there. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says this. Then, now, after they had eaten of the fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Now, that's not physically open. Their eyes are already open physically, that's spiritually. They're aware of things now they were not aware of before. The eyes of them both were opened. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Now here's the second entry point for us. We've already seen for the very first time that the serpent has entered the picture. We've never seen him before. It's the first time in Genesis chapter 3 we see him. Now the second thing we notice, for the first time we've seen the serpent, the second thing that makes its entry into Genesis chapter 3 we've never seen before is sin. See that? The serpent enters the picture. The second thing that's never been around is sin. Now Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 says their eyes were opened. They ate of this fruit and sin enters the world. Now I want you to understand something if you're taking notes or whatever you need to underline this verse. And maybe even out beside it you need to write this. We cannot overemphasize the importance of this moment in history. We cannot overemphasize the moment in history. See, here's here's the big picture. God has created everything good, right? It's good. Genesis 1 and 2 is good, and it's perfect. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent enters, sin enters, and from that moment forward, everything changes. The world we live in now that's full of sin and full of death and full of destruction is a direct relation to Genesis chapter 3. All the sin we deal with in our world and in our lives came into the world through Genesis chapter 3. Everything changed. Now you say, well, wait a minute now. I'm reading this passage of Scripture. I'm looking at Genesis chapter 3. And the Bible says that Eve ate the fruit. She gave some to her husband. Their eyes were opened. But how do you get this idea of sin? I mean, eating an apple or a fruit and your eyes being opened and sin entering the world are are different ideas. Adam, how do you arrive at this point that there's sin? Well, there's a couple of reasons we do this. Number one, we're going to see later in Genesis chapter 3 that God had commanded them not to eat it. Because they ate it, they disobeyed God, and He's going to punish them. That's sin. We see that. But from a bigger picture of Scripture, even than just that moment in the garden, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I want you to listen to what it says. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Now hold that thought for a second. I'll come back to it. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. See that? When sin entered the world, death also entered the world. And in this way, death came to all men because all sin. Now you say, wait a minute. You said that Eve partook of the fruit and the sin came to the world. Now you're telling me in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that because Adam did this, sin entered the world through one man. Is it Adam or is it Eve? How did sin enter the world through Adam when Eve's the one that partook of the fruit? Now, we, this, is a, this is a whole other topic for us. I don't have time to talk about this morning, but here's the bottom line for the men of this congregation. This is a very clear evidence. This is a very clear demonstration of your responsibility for your family. You see that? Eve partook of the fruit, but Adam bore the responsibility for the family. That's amazing, right? And the Bible says that Eve ate it and then gave it to her husband, but Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says that sin entered the world through one man. Here's the bottom line, man. You are called in responsibility for your family. You're to watch over your spouse and protect her. You're to keep her from sinfulness. You're to protect her from the temptations and the sinfulness of the world. That's your call. But because Adam was not able to do that, sin entered the world through him. Now I want to define sin just for a second for you. Sometimes there's confusion about what sin is and what it looks like and how it manifests itself. Let me give you a biblical definition of sin very quickly. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. It's a failure to conform to God's teachings. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, God said, Don't eat from this tree. They ate from the tree. They failed to obey God. They failed to conform to His teaching. Therefore, it's sin. Now, here's what we think about sin oftentimes. We think that sin is an action. If I do these things, then I'm sinful. And that is true. Certainly there are actions that we can do that will lead to sin or that in fact are sin. There's a whole list that we could go through. But we need to take it a step farther than that. Because Christ explains to us when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He explains to us that not only is the action a sin, but the thought and the attitude that lead to that action is sin. So here's what Christ says, Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. You have heard it said... To the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you, these are the words of Christ, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. See that? The anger is bad enough, but the idea and the thought of anger is the same. If you murder your brother, that's a sin. But if you have anger in your heart, that's also a sin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, Christ again, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, the idea of adultery is sinful. But the thought of adultery leading up to that point is also sinful. And so when we begin to think about what sin is, it's it's the idea of, of not doing what God has called us to do. We see that our actions can be sinful, but also our thoughts and our attitudes can be sinful. We arrive at the conclusion... That we see in Scripture in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. Now here's the implication as we move on through the book of Romans. If all have sinned, that means you've sinned, it means I've sinned. Romans 5.23 tells us this, The wages of sin, now if we've all sinned, then the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, when sin entered the world, for the very first time, death entered the world. Now, I don't have time to talk about that, but think about the implications there. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no death in the world. That's an interesting idea, but that's what the Bible teaches us. So here's the question we arrive at. So God created everything good. Genesis 1 and 2, everything was good, everything was perfect. He created it as it should have been. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent enters, sin enters, and everything changes. Here's the question we ask. What's God going to do about it? Did God just wake up in Genesis chapter 3 and go, you know, I'm just, what do I need to do now? Wow. Told them not to do it. They did it. (laughs) How am I going to fix this? I mean, did God just wake up one morning and not know what to do? Well, of course he did. And we're going to see in just a minute what the scripture teaches about that. But here's what God's going to do about it. God created it good. Adam and Eve sinned. He's going to punish them. In fact, if you were to continue to read through Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see that God is going to pass judgment. He's going to curse the snake, which we're going to look at here in just a second. He's going to curse the ground. He's going to punish Adam and Eve. And we're going to pick up this story in the middle of Genesis chapter 3. But before we do, I want you to understand something. This is kind of getting to the summit. We're kind of climbing up the hill now. The serpent has entered the world. Sin has entered the world. God is going to curse the serpent. He's going to curse the ground. He's going to punish Adam. He's going to punish Eve. But before he does that now, before he punishes Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see this incredible picture of grace. All right, so Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Now, we're skipping a few verses here. Adam and Eve have sinned. God has gone to Adam. What have you done, Adam? Adam literally says, Eve made me do it. That's the blame game. We still do it today. (laughs) Adam says, Eve made me do it. So he goes to Eve. Eve, why'd you do it? What does Eve say? Serpent made me do it, right? So this is passing the buck. So now we get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord is now going to talk to the serpent about this. So God says, or the Lord, God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, again, because you led them into temptation, led them to sin. In fact, in certain parts of Scripture, the serpent here is called a murderer because he led them to sin, which is eventually going to lead to death. But God says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now look at verse 15. This is, I think, the summit of Genesis chapter 3. It's the beginning of hope. Listen to what happens here. This is God still talking to the serpent. And I, this is God, will put enmity, that's a big word, hostility, anger, animosity. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent and the woman. We know those two people, right? We know the woman, that's Eve. We know the serpent. God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, that's the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Satan. In other words, the people of God and the people of evil. See that? He... Will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, now who is he? Now we know that we know the woman, right? Enity between you, that serpent. We just studied him in Genesis 3. We know who he is now. We know who the woman is. We understand this idea of offspring, but all of a sudden God throws in this idea in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, of he. Now we don't know who he is yet, do we? But here's what we notice as we begin to walk through this passage of scripture. We've seen the serpent enter, number one, that we've never seen him before. Number two, sin has entered the world. We've never seen sin enter the world. And now number three, I'm going to argue for the next few minutes that the third thing we know is for the first time in the history of the world, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the entry of, number three, the Savior. We've seen the serpent. We've seen the sin. Now we're going to see the Savior. Now, the Bible uses a very interesting word here, enmity. Enmity means anger, hatred, animosity, but it's only used five times in the Old Testament. Five times. Five times. And every time every time it's used, it's a personal animosity between individuals. You understand that? There's a personal anger or animosity between two individuals. Now in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have kind of three levels of animosity. We've got the animosity and the 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 enmity between the woman and the serpent. That's the first level. It's interesting that, that Eve had kind of, it seems almost like found this friendship with the serpent. They're having this conversation, right? They're talking. He's giving her some advice. She's taking the advice. It almost seems as if a friendship is beginning to form here. And God says, I can't allow this friendship. You can't be friends with Satan. So I'm going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent. We see that. The next level is between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. The, the followers down through history. And number three, we see this enmity between Satan and he. And we don't know who he is yet. But we see there's this third level of enmity. And we begin to ask ourselves the question, who is he? Now scholars refer to this little section of Genesis 3 as the proto-evangelium. It's a very funny sounding word, but here's what it means. It's the first gospel. It's the first picture of hope and redemption through one person. Now again, I talked last week about this idea of progressive revelation. The idea that in the Old Testament a lot of things that we understand are veiled. We get a a picture, but we're not really sure exactly what that picture is. We know that something's ahead, but we don't know exactly what that something is. We know something's coming in the future, but we don't know exactly what that is. But I want to argue for the next couple of minutes, as I kind of wind this down this morning, Then, in the midst of this terrible situation, remember, sinfulness has entered the world. The serpent has entered the world. Everything's going to change. In the middle of all this terrible turmoil, in the middle of this sin, God's going to show His grace. And he's going to offer hope to these people. So there are three things I want to give you very quickly as I try to finish up this morning. We don't know who he is, but there are three things we do know. Number one, he is a descendant of Adam and Eve and he's going to be a man. We know that. We know that he's a descendant of Adam and Eve and he's going to be a man. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he, speaking of the offspring, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now it's very interesting if you were to read on through. Flip over to Genesis 5 very quickly this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to show you something that I think is just amazing. If you don't have it, I'm going to read it to you. But Genesis chapter 5. We see in the very beginning already in Genesis chapter 5 that the people of earth, the people of the Old Testament, understand that God has cursed the ground and they understand that something is coming ahead. There's this hope of a Savior. They don't know who He is. They don't know when He's going to arrive. They don't know exactly what He's going to do. But they know that He at some point is going to arrive. And So we read in Genesis chapter 5 verse 28 and 29. When Lamech, who is, that's Noah's father, when Lamech had lived 182 years, this is Genesis chapter 5 now, this is a few chapters later, he fathered a son and he called him Noah. Now we know the story of Noah. Now here's what his dad said. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, you see that? Lamech understands that there's a curse on the ground, there's sin in the world. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, speaking of Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You see, he already understands in Genesis chapter 5, he understands that God has cursed the ground, there's sin in the world, and somebody one day is going to come and bring us relief. You understand that? Someday, somebody's going to arrive and offer us hope. And Lamech hoped that it would be Noah. Maybe this will be the one that's prophesied about. Maybe this will be the one that from the ground will come and relieve us, will bring us salvation will reverse this curse that God has placed on the ground and reverse the sin that's entered the world. Now, we don't understand who he is yet, but we know something's coming up in here. Here's the second thing we notice about this person. Not only is he going to be a male descendant of Adam and Eve, but he's going to do battle against Satan, and he's going to be wounded. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So there's somebody coming. He's a male descendant of Adam and Eve. He's going to do battle with the serpent, and he's going to be wounded. That's what it tells us. Now, I'm reminded of Isaiah 53. I don't have time to read it all this morning. You need to write it in. You should read it. It's probably the single best prophetic chapter of Christ in all the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says this. Now, I want you to listen to the imagery that we see from Genesis chapter 3 here. Ready? The, the, this descendant will be a male. He's going to be wounded. Listen to Isaiah 53, 5. He, speaking ahead again of this same person, was wounded. There's that word for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. You see that? That's the picture. He's going to be wounded. Isaiah 53.7 talks about being oppressed and afflicted. Isaiah 53.8 talks about his transgressions and the fact that he was stricken. Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. You see, we're building this picture in Genesis chapter 3 of something to come. A male descendant, we don't know exactly who yet, that's going to do battle with Satan and is going to be injured. We don't know exactly how yet. And then the third thing we notice about him is that ultimately he will crush the head of the serpent. Ultimately, whoever this male heir is that does battle and is wounded will have victory. (laughs) He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, again, we don't know what that means. We're just in Genesis chapter 3. We've got thousands of years ahead of us of history to try to figure out exactly who he is But we know this descendant will ultimately have victory over the devil. Romans 16.20 says this. Listen to the imagery again. You ready? The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. You see the imagery right there from Genesis chapter 3. This prophetic person is going to be a male descendant. He's going to do battle. He's going to be wounded. But eventually he's going to crush Satan under his feet. Now I'm going to argue That for the first time in the history of the world, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, we see a picture of Jesus Christ. We see a picture of the Savior. We don't know who He is yet. We don't know what He's going to look like. We don't know how He's going to be wounded. We don't know how He's ultimately going to crush Satan. But in the beginning, sin has just entered the world. Death has just entered the world. Hopelessness has just entered the world. And in the midst of Genesis chapter 3, we see as we look ahead to the prophetic Messiah, hope. We see a picture of Jesus Christ. I want to read for you Revelation 13.8 as we think about the big picture. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. These are the end times. And all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was, listen to this, slain from the creation of the world. You see, God didn't just wake up in Genesis chapter 3 and wonder what he was going to do. He had a plan from the beginning. And he offered in the beginning of creation, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this turmoil, he offered hope through Jesus Christ. And so I ask you the question this morning as I finish up, where do you place your hope? The people of Genesis chapter 3 and Lamech and Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to see, I think, over the next many weeks as we just kind of open up the Scriptures, the hope that people place in Christ, they, they begin to learn more and more and more about him through all these Old Testament stories as we see the big picture. But the question I ask you this morning is, where do you place your hope? people of genesis chapter 3 place their hope in a coming messiah who do you place your hope in is it in the things of the world is it in the possessions of life is it in yourself is it in your ability to do or is it in jesus christ you see god created everything good we live in a world fallen of sin it's our desire to get back into the right order to get back into the right relationship to get back to the right purpose that god created us for but here's the problem we have we can't do it ourselves The only way we can get back into a right standing with God is through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see over the next many weeks, through Jesus Christ, God's great story unfold. Let's pray together. Father, we worship your name. We praise you for who you are, Lord. From the beginning, you had a plan. As soon as sin entered the world, Father, you already had a plan for us. And you, you demonstrated your love for us by sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And Father, we thank You for this teaching. We thank You for the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3. Lord, although early in Scripture we don't know yet, we know something's coming, Lord, and we place our hope in the Messiah. We place our hope in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray You would just reveal Yourself to us in mighty and powerful ways. Father, You would speak to us and help us to see more clearly Your Son. And Lord, I pray that You would allow Him to work in our hearts and in our minds so we can do all the things You've called us to do. And we'll praise you in every way we know. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you a few minutes. If you want to come and kneel at the altar and pray. If you want to repent from your sins and trust Christ for your salvation. Or if you want to join our church, this is your time right now. Thank you Podcast, we invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia, or visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. God bless you.